0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O M, McClanahan.com. Give me that email address when you're here. I'll give you a free ebook, free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. Also, Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. You can support the show at McClanahan Academy. You can support the show at brianmcclanahan.com. Clicking on that support tab, you can throw a few pennies my way. You can support the show by clicking on the shop tab, getting my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can support the show by going to True, T-R-U-E, History.com. Lots of ways to support the show, but sharing around on social media, letting people know you like it, sending me those show requests, that keeps you involved in the show And, of course, keeps the show fresh and interesting to you. And that's what I want. All right. So wrapping up the week, um, we again, I shifted gears this week. I was going to do something, did something else now. But I want to focus on a piece that Jeff Dice wrote at Mises.org. And um, the reason I want to do that is because this is an interesting piece. Uh, It was later published at LewRockwell.com. But uh, Jeff Deist, of course, is the president of the Mises Institute. And uh, this, this piece speaks to different things that are major themes of this particular show. Now, in 2016, 2016, interesting year, I wrote a book uh, entitled How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. And I, the original title of that book was going to be How the Supreme Court... Screwed Up America. But the entire point of the book, if, you, if you've not read it, you can get it. I mean, unfortunately, the book didn't sell uh, the way that um, it could have sold, I think, with, with uh, some different marketing. But um, the, the premise of the book is that nationalism is the enemy of good government in America. So the first half of the book is designed to attack the Hamiltonian vision of America. And the second is to show how the Supreme Court capitalized on that with people like John Marshall and Joseph Story and on down the line. Uh, Hugo Black. I mean, these are the people that I went after in the book. And look, if you go back and look at American history, there's no way you can go look at the ratification debates. There's no way you can look at the uh, formation of the Constitution, any of that, without coming away with with the understanding that no one really wanted, or at least the majority of Americans, I could say no one, there were people that did, but the majority of Americans did not want extreme centralization. Massachusetts did not want to be governed by South Carolina, and South Carolina did not want to be governed by Massachusetts. It was clear. Uh, in fact, I mean, I, I always use this particular quote. John Rutledge, in the Philadelphia Convention, when a proposed state a federal negative of state law, was brought up. He said that alone ought to damn the Constitution. The founding generation was not really interested in the central authority being able to decide what the states could and could not do. Because there was already a culture war brewing back then. We talk about the culture war today, but the culture war was already brewing back then. And it wasn't just about slavery. I mean, there were certainly people in Massachusetts and Connecticut and, and New England that were uh, feigning moral outrage over this. While um, it wasn't very long before that, that, of course, the state of Massachusetts, before 1787, the state of Massachusetts allowed slavery, and John Adams was writing a pro-slavery constitution of Massachusetts. And, of course, at that time... There were many people in New England who were still making a boatload of cash on the slave trade, on the international slave trade. So when I say feigning moral outrage, I mean that. Uh, In Massachusetts, as Harvard, and I'm going to talk about this next week, as Harvard University has now gone out and said, oh my gosh, we have all these people that had ties to slavery that were uh, at Harvard University. And so, I mean, yes, this is the case, right? So... Uh, the culture war was deeper than that, though, because you had these different political cultures in America. You had the Puritans, the Yankees, who had a different view of American society than you, than you would see in, say, uh, South Carolina, where you had, or in, in the backcountry of the United States. I mean, you could even look at you know, Pennsylvania, the western part of the state of Pennsylvania, or New York. Of course, Maryland, Virginia, the Carolinas. All those people were different. Than what you would find in the in the Brahmin areas, right, or the, the 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 major urban areas of of Boston, you know, and, and uh, along the coast there. Even in the in the South, you had uh, different cultural dynamics, but Southerners were generally unified in the belief of much more individual liberty. And I think that's an important important part to take away from this. I've talked about liberty before. What does liberty actually mean? You certainly had different visions and definitions of liberty in America. You had the, the liberty of the individual versus the community liberty. And so in, in Massachusetts, you had people that were dedicated to community liberty. It was the freedom from that was more important than the freedom to. And by the freedom from, we're talking about freedom from fear, freedom from want. You go back and look at the entire situation with COVID. This is all driven by Yankee ideology. The freedom from being sick. The freedom from fear of getting sick. I mean, a mask, which we know don't work. I mean, they never worked. I remember when all this started, when COVID started, and people were starting to mask up, and I said, this is pointless. I mean, it's a virus. It's not going to be protected by your little mask. You're, you're going to get sick. This is why virologists wear these huge suits when they go in. There's, there's no way a mask is going to protect you. It doesn't matter if you've got two on or four on or everybody's wearing a mask. It's not going to protect you from a virus. And uh, But that was... That was Yankee ideology. Well, if we put on a mask, we're not going to be as afraid when we go out. And so that was, of course, uh, the freedom from fear. And it's a, it's a dominant strain in American history. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You have people that believe this. They believe in this to their core. And so that's how they're going to govern society. Well, the rest of America didn't want that. I mean, it's the stupid thing of, well, you can't go walk in the park, right? That's, that was idiotic. That wasn't going to do anything. But of course... That's the freedom from fear. And so there were already culture wars brewing in America long before we had the issue of slavery, long before we had any of these other issues. We have different people in America. Now, in the 1810s, right, 1820s, Americans were generally more united on some major beliefs than they are today. I would say that America is much more fractured today than it's ever been when it comes to uh, their core beliefs. Americans were generally Christian in the 1820s. It didn't matter if you're North or South. They had generally accepted views of normal in society. Right? We don't have that anymore. We've lost the entire anchor of the word normal. What does that even mean? And the language has changed so much that we can't even we're not even speaking the same language with people in different parts of the country anymore. It doesn't even exist. Or different political religions because that's essentially what's happened. We now have adopted different political religions. And Lincoln, of course, was elevating us to that point when he basically said the, the, the Constitution and the Declaration are religion. I mean, it's a religion for Americans. It's a secular religion. So now we're at a point where we're so fractured, we're so fractured that when you start talking about centralization and you start talking about these big issues, right, social issues, other things, particularly social issues, that's the key to every single debate in America. And that's where Jeff Dice's piece is, is good. The title of the piece is Why Social Issues Dominate. And he begins it with some good questions and some good points. He said Inflation in the U.S. is at 40 year highs, while interest rates on 10 year Treasury notes just hit 3%, signaling trouble for home buyers. Truck drivers pay more than $1,000 to fill their rigs with $5 per gallon diesel to deliver your increasingly expensive groceries and Amazon packages. Crime and homelessness skyrocket in large cities, exacerbated by violent opioids. And America's proxy war with Russia and Ukraine gives rise to the most serious threats of nuclear strikes against the West since the 1960s. Yet so-called social issues, from abortion to critical race theory to teaching gender identity in elementary schools, dominate our politics and media. Virtually every voter has a strong opinion on these issues, and pays far more attention to them than, say, the M2 money supply or the next Fed Open Market Committee meeting though the latter could have a far greater impact on that voter's lives and finances. Why is this so? He says the short answer is the Supreme Court. I would say that it's not the Supreme Court. The short answer is nationalism. But, of course, the Supreme Court reflects the major centralization of America that really began, started beginning with Hamilton as Secretary of Treasury. I've said one of the greatest September 11th disasters in American history was when Hamilton was appointed Secretary of Treasury. It was, a, it was September 11th, 1789. It was a grave disaster for America. It was the first September 11th disaster. Because Hamilton, as Secretary of Treasury, is going to be working to centralize power in, at that time, New York, later, later Philadelphia, and then later Washington, D.C., So as you centralize power and you start making every issue national in scope, that's going to change everything. It's going to make it to where you're going to start fighting over the spoils. You're going to start fighting over the patronage. You're going to start fighting over all these little minor issues that should really be handled at the state and local level. As Tench Cox pointed out when arguing for ratification, look, all these things that we're fighting about now, these are state issues. It's not a federal issue. None of these things are federal issues yet. They become part of the federal language and federal discourse, but more because we've, quote-unquote, nationalized these things. And when you simply talk about majoritarian politics, numerical majoritarian politics, that's exactly what's going to happen. And when you say that we have a one American people, this is what's going to happen, even though the left knows this is not true, because they talk about it all the time. We have diversity. Well, if you really believe in diversity, then you would believe in decentralization. Hamilton was a pure nationalist. He did believe in an American nation. He believed in one American people. He believed that all we should have is one people, everyone that we have a uniform policy. And I, there's a re, there's a, a podcast I did a couple of weeks back on why George Washington was a nationalist. There's a reason for it. You can actually understand Washington's position and Hamilton's position and Marshall's position. You can understand it. You can understand it because they were facing a problem in the world with the French Revolution. And they had a wild frontier that anything goes. I mean, you had to tame all this. You had the British and the French and perhaps the Spanish. I mean, you had foreign powers that were uh, perhaps going to invade and conquer the United States and break it apart. And all of these things worried them. They worried about Jacobins running around the countryside and lopping off heads. They worried about this stuff. And I think in some cases, rightfully so, though I don't think you really had those kind of radical uh, French revolutionaries, many of them here in America, but they worried about these things. The the United States was a fledgling federal republic, and they thought by centralizing power, you could keep it together. The union was important to these people. So you can understand their, their nationalism, but today, to go back and look at it, and say this was the right thing to do for today, when we know that the decentralists, the, the Republicans, were actually correct in what would happen if we nationalized, and that would be major political discord in America. They were correct. So when you have people like Richard Brookheiser run around quoting Marshall like it's, I mean, the the Bible, and this is what he does, right? It's the it's the book of John Marshall. When you do that. You are setting yourself up to being defeated every single time. Why? Because the left knows that the court is theirs. That's the only way they've ever been able to get anything done. It's why I wrote the book. I wanted to write that book because I wanted to expose how bad the court has been. Now, John Marshall's considered to be a conservative. Joseph Story, he's often considered to be an originalist, wrongfully so. But he is. That's what people are. Joseph Story, the originalist. No, he's not. Joseph Story actually took the arguments against the Constitution and flipped them on his head and said, well, this is what they said it was going to mean, so this is what it means. I mean, if you have people saying the Constitution is going to create this powerful executive, the Constitution is going to create this centralized monstrosity, Story said, yeah, that's right, that's what it did. This is, this is what we get. They're right. So this is the problem with John Marshall, Joseph Story, and of course, then you get to someone like Hugo Black, who's a progressive, but he wanted to centralize certain decisions and make the United States uniform. And his major pet peeve, of course, were Catholics. He didn't want to have Catholics, uh, Catholic schools getting any money for busing and other things. Um, and he's going to invent incorporation. And incorporation, as I talked about yesterday, is the real problem. When you incorporate, the Bill of Rights. When you say the Bill of Rights apply to the states, you create an entire mess of jurisprudence because the Fourteenth Amendment was never designed to do that. We know it. Even those that were looking at uh, uh, drafting it, and then of course in the ratification process, said it didn't. Now there were a couple that did. I mean, this is—I have to say this. When you read Raoul Berger's "Government by Judiciary." He makes a convincing argument that these these people weren't really that interested in corporations. Some were, though. I mean, you have to admit, maybe even Bingham was. He was, but uh, the majority of the Congress said, no, no, no. That's not what this thing's going to do. We're not going to. I mean, look, the Supreme Court has already said that the Bill of Rights don't apply to the states. We're not doing that with this. Um, this is not what's going to happen. So let me get back to uh, to Dice piece here. He says yesterday brought news that a leaked draft. Opinion allegedly from Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Alito pretends the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This brought forth paroxysms of anger and fear across the media spectrum, especially on social platforms like Twitter. Protesters quickly arrived at the newly fenced-off court building, and the camar- uh, commentariat began uh, enumerating the predictable dire threats for the future of women posed by a Trumpian right-wing court. Again, we don't see the outburst when Congress spends $5 trillion on stimulus or, or when the Fed quadruples its balance sheet, to put it mildly, or when gas prices double. Acting wildly beyond its constitutional parameters, the court has become the de facto super-legislature for all 50 states. The political class pretends otherwise, but the stridency of its denunciations against conservative court nominees is, is its, and its slavish support for progressive nominees demonstrates the irretrievably political nature of granting a handful of justices such power over the lives of 330, 330, 330 million people. In such a top-down, winner-take-all environment, the stakes become needlessly high and and politicized in the nastiest ways imaginable. So, of course, presidential candidates and the resulting makeup of the court become matters of life and death for the true believers whose sense of identity is rooted in the social issues ruled upon by the court. So, um, I mean, he's pointing this out. We, and I've said this, elevated politics to a religion. I mean, it's, it's not Catholics and Protestants anymore. It's those that believe... In uh, a sacred government, and those that don't. I mean, when you have Kamala Harris and Joe Biden stand up and say that you know, the, the Capitol is a sacred place, sacred, that term sacred had meaning. That was for religious areas. Well, when they say it's sacred, a sacrament, sacred, what are they doing? The Congress isn't sacred, it's a, it's a government building. It's not sacred. But when you elevate it to that, to some people, it is sacred. That's all they think about. And they can't get over it. He says this happened for two primary reasons. First, so-called judicial review created a superpower to determine the constitutionality of any law at any level of government. A superpower nowhere to be found in Article Three of the Constitution. Now, I'll say this. Even before we had uh, Marbury v. Madison in 1803, there was judicial review, Hilton v. United States, and Hamilton was involved in that. It was the first time that the federal government upheld, or the Supreme Court, I should say, upheld a federal law. It was Hamilton's tax. They upheld it, said it's constitutional. Now, you didn't have one singular opinion, but they all said, yeah, yeah, we we agree with this, right? So we had the Supreme Court declare a federal law constitutional. Now, when you go back and you look at the debates in Philadelphia, and you look at the ratification debates... Generally, the states that had judicial review already were in favor of it. Generally, the states that didn't were against it. There was some debate about this, whether we would have it. When you have Patrick Henry stand up and say, you know what? Uh, we've got to have judicial review because that's going to ensure that the federal government gets laws declared unconstitutional. I mean, there's, there's something to this, right? Some people were, people were interested in some way to knock down unconstitutional laws. It is not found in Article. I mean, Jeff Dice is right about this. It's not found in Article Three of the Constitution. There's No explicit power saying that you have the authority to declare laws unconstitutional. But the real catch was not federal law at all. It's state law. As I mentioned yesterday, this is the real issue. It was the real issue. Even John Marshall in the Virginia Ratifying Convention hinted that state law would be not subject to federal supervision, unless it conflicted with Article 1, Section 10, right? I mean, if the states raised an army um, and had their own foreign policy, I should say, you know, raise an army, not a militia, but, you know, actually created an army and had their own foreign policy, well, that would clearly be unconstitutional. And so something would have to knock that down. But if we're talking about these issues that Jeff brought up at the beginning, all these social issues, well, these are perfectly under the purview of the states. No one argued otherwise. No one in, in 1788 would have said, you know what? We need a federal law about marriage. Now, part of this is created because we have uh, all these federal benefits, right? I mean, so we have uh, Social Security. Well, who can get your Social Security check when you die? Well, I mean, that creates an entire different, entirely different process now because we've just but Social Security then is unconstitutional. I mean, so, so we, have, we have these unconstitutional problems creating more unconstitutional problems this is this is the issue with nationalization so you know look judicial review the real issue is not federal law it's state law it's a federal negative this was proposed a couple of times in the philadelphia convention and knocked down both times i mean every time it was discussed no we're not doing that no we're not having the federal courts invalidate state law. No, we're not doing this. No, we're not having a federal negative of state law. It's just not going to happen. He says, This effectively grants the court potential jurisdiction over every last state or local law down to the most minute edicts that ought to be none of the federal government's business. This is an absurd result in a gross abuse of the Constitution's shared powers under a federalist system. Even if one argues the court generally does not abuse this power to boss around the states, it always could and sometimes does. This is true, but the issue again... Is that no one in the federal in the in the founding generation wanted the federal government or thought the federal government would do this? Even into 1861, right? When you had the proposed Corwin Amendment, which, as Daniel Crofts has pointed out, is really the Lincoln Amendment, right? This is what this would have made slavery permanent in the South. Southerners who are still around were saying this is stupid. This is stupid because. The general government can't do anything about the states, anyways. That's not the issue. The issue, of course, is the territories. What kind of power does this, does the Congress have to regulate the territories? That was the issue. It wasn't the states. Even Northerners are saying, I ah, really can't do much about the states. I mean, Lincoln was saying, I can't do anything in the states. That's a state issue. Can't do anything about that. No one thought this. The issue has only come up when we've started seeing a federal negative, of state law. That's the point. And it wasn't because there's anything in the Constitution that allows it. It's just something that's happened. Second, speeches interpretations of the 14th Amendment and the resulting incorporation doctrine effectively threw a net of federal laws, rules, and court decisions over all 50 states without their consent. Nobody at the time the amendment passed, especially not the various ratifying state legislatures, could have imagined the opaque language of the amendment would cause the high court to issue a series of rulings turning states into glorified federal counties. Well, this is true. I think there were some that certainly hoped that would be the case. And I, I'm not saying that. And, and Eric Foner, in his um, most recent book, uh, actually makes the case that, yeah, they did. I mean, this is what people really wanted to happen. Uh, and Raul Berger says they didn't. So we've got these two different historians, one a legal historian, one Eric Foner. Uh, battling this out, um, I think that there were some individuals who certainly wanted this, but to the majority of Americans, they didn't want this. And we know with the slaughterhouse cases, we know the Supreme Court was not going to allow this to happen. Very narrowly interpreted the 14th Amendment, which is what the original interpretation was and should be. But we know that over time, these are some things that have happened. Rather than incorporate certain provisions of the federal constitution into state law, why not do so expressly? For example... Why not simply rewrite the First Amendment to say neither Congress, the various states, nor any subdivision of the various states shall make any law respecting? Well, we know that Madison tried to do this. That's the other thing about incorporation. James Madison wanted an incorporation amendment in the original Bill of Rights. And you know what happened? No. The, the, uh, the founding generation said, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing it. This only applies to Congress, not the states. We know that three states saw state established churches when the First Amendment was ratified, right? So the, the founding generation was not going to have incorporation, and that is an important takeaway from history. But of course, that would go against the progressive church. So religion is going to supersede originalism. He says we all know why. This kind of expressed language would have been a complete political non-starter at the time. Even the northern states still wanted and demanded far more independence from the federal government during the Reconstruction era. Thus, we are left with a permanent injury to federalism in the Tenth Amendment, an injury that causes social issues to play a vastly outsized role in American politics. This is not to say the Supreme Court has had less impact on economic matters before. Given, e.g., its perverse interpretations of the Commerce Clause and absurd rulings during the Lochner era, and again. I said yesterday, there are people already making the case that you could legislate somehow Roe v. Wade through the Commerce Clause. Right? I mean, this is this is what's happening, and the, the Supreme Court, the the uh, case law would certainly lend to that interpretation. But people don't don't flood the steps of the Supreme Court to protest minimum wage laws or scream obscenities at justices over cases of zoning in the city of New London, Connecticut. In short. There is nothing remotely suggesting a right to abortion in the text of the Constitution under even the most tortured interpretation. This is purely a matter for states falling under the Ninth and 10th Amendments. A returning road does not change a single law in a single state. And it does not prevent any state legislature from loosening restrictions in, in reaction. These restrictions in reaction. It simply revokes jurisdiction over the issue from federal courts. This ought to be an amendable solution, amendable to everyone. But, as he says in a tweet, progressives will never take this deal. They won't because the church of the nation is their problem. See, the people we have to convince about federalism are not people on the right, though. Even they need to be convinced at times, um, or at least when it comes to some issues. The people on the left are the real problems. Now, on some issues, the left is more interested in federalism than the right, and the right would say, "Well, you got to have like the drug war or um, you know immigration. These are things that uh, the left would be more in lockstep with with federalism than." than the right. See, we have selective federalism in America. We have selective belief in federalism in America, and that's the real problem. So Dice concludes, mass democracy under shifting rules often determined by non-politicized judges is not a prescription for harmony and goodwill among 330 million very diverse Americans. Those millions don't agree much about guns, God, abortion, and plenty more, but they don't have to agree. In a post-liberal and post-good-faith environment, aggressive federalism and realistic discussions of political secession... The obvious pass forward. If you claim to love your fellow American citizen, unyoke them from the federal superstate and demand the same for yourself. The universalist totalizing impulse, which resulted in the dramatic centralization of state power throughout the 20th century, must be reversed in the 21st. The other way lies political strife and worse. And Again, I agree. This is why I've had my slogan, Think Locally, Act Locally, for years. and I've been talking about secession and decentralization as peaceful means to solve America's problems not violent means we want violence you go with centralization what caused the war in 1861 centralization that's what caused the war it was an attempt to keep states in the union centralization caused the war it was about power you want nonviolence? allow for self-determination allow for political decentralization this would solve so many problems in america all you have to do is simply uh, use your brain and and look at and look at history and how many things were caused by Hamilton, how he screwed up America, and of course the Supreme Court. All right, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McLean Show. I'll see you next week for the next one. See you then.